This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Plenty of people in the publishing world fear that new media and the internet will kill interest in reading literary fiction. Andy Hunter and Scott Lindenbaum, however, think of Twitter, YouTube, and the iPad as opportunities to introduce new audiences to the art of the short story and to tell stories in unique ways. They are the founders of Electric Literature, a quarterly literary magazine that publishes using a print-on-demand model and enhances its stories through collaborations between authors and animators, filmmakers, and musicians. Tell me a little bit, talk to me a little bit about Electric Literature and the concept behind it, the mission, and how it works. Okay. Um, well, Scott and I met at an MFA program. We're both fiction writers. Um, and at the time, there was a lot of pessimism about the uh, prospects of, for example, us selling our books. But overall, just people reading fiction, and particularly literary fiction in the future, people as prominent as Philip Roth were forecasting the demise of serious reading in the next 20 years. Um, we were working on the Brooklyn Review, which is a literary journal put out by Brooklyn College that's been around for 25 years, and um, but it wasn't really getting the kind of reach, and it wasn't that we, we wanted it to have, and it wasn't paying writers. Um, and we felt like there was a new model that could be done where we could take some of these forces, the, like a new media that seemed to threaten literature and um, internet distribution and use it to promote literature instead and we felt like we could kind of develop a new model where we could pay writers by offsetting the costs that are normally spent on upfront printing, shipping and warehousing and using instead mostly digital distribution. We're about 75 or 80 percent digital and the remaining 20 percent is print on demand which means that whenever anybody buys a copy of electric literature in paperback form we, they print it automatically at that moment, so we never have to put up upfront costs. So instead of basically spending, you know, ten thousand dollars to have something printed, we can give that ten thousand dollars to the writer, and um, distribute it digitally and via print-on-demand. It also kind of allows us to focus more on engaging with the reader uh, through like various marketing and PR that. When we were at the Brooklyn Review, for instance, uh, which is a really good example of a traditional literary magazine, um, we had no money to do that. Uh, we'd spend almost the entire budget, you know, giving everybody pizza and then printing the thing, uh, and then it would end up in boxes. So we'll take some of that cash that's now displaced and do kind of new media um, kind of initiatives. Like, for instance, we have a thing called the Single Sentence Animation Series where a writer we're going to publish, say, like Rick Moody, who was in our most recent issue, will take a single sentence from his story that he selects, give it to an animator, let them riff on it in any way that um, they desire, kind of let them have creative reign over it. They'll come up with something, then we give it to a musician, they score it, and then we put it out on YouTube. Right? And we can pay everyone all along the way in this process, I mean a small amount, um, but still it, it makes it so that there is um, like a real incentive there and we get to create a great art object and we are able to engage with our readers where they already are, which is on YouTube, looking for interesting content. That doesn't mean they are not interested in Rick Moody, maybe they are, but now there's some real interesting creative collaborative content on YouTube that's related to Moody and it kind of brings them back toward our brand and hopefully back toward reading. Yeah, I'd like to say a little bit more about our videos. Um, you know, by having, by using prominent artists and prominent musicians sometimes, 
uh, we expose their audiences that they already have to literary work. And then we expose um, our literary followers to the work of these artists and musicians. And part of that, that kind of thing is the kind of cultural dialogue that we think it's so important that, that literary fiction is part of. We don't want literary fiction to be in an ivory tower and disassociated from our common culture. We want it to be a vital part of our culture. And so things like that, these experiments um, that we do online and with new media are all about keeping literature part of the dialogue. And so you see there's kind of then the mission of electric literature turns into a two-pronged uh, initiative. It's you know, using innovative distribution, which Andy talked about at the beginning, and then using new media in order to create that kind of dialogue. So when we talk about an 80% digital distribution, we're really talking about device-based reading. Um, we're talking about distributing through the iPhone, where we were the first literary magazine to do that, to the iPad. We're talking about reaching readers on the Kindle as a magazine on the Kindle as a book. Um, having an ebook, a subscription model, which people have been talking about all day today, um, you know, an audiobook or any other viable um, distribution. Now, when we say viable, what we really mean is don't publish it online because online is a place where people are used to uh, getting content for free. And if they encounter a paywall, they will go elsewhere because there's plenty of other free content. Um, the model that we're trying to create which sets a precedent um, and it shows how by rearranging the elements and finding where people are used to paying for content, you can then pay the creative people as well, the content creators. So it's, it's very important that people understand it's not an online magazine. We're talking about new distribution, totally new. I mean, the iPad is right now. Um, and we're talking then about agitating for literature by using new media. Right. Now you talked about, and you just talked about the animation of a single sentence. I know that you guys had also had, I think it was a Rick Moody story too, that went entirely on Twitter. Tell me, I mean, when you get a story, when you get a piece of content, I mean, how do you sort of t look at that story and figure out, you know, what is, the be what is the best platforms to use for it? I mean, how do we use those platforms? Like, how do we take it to YouTube? How do we take it to Twitter? Something that we, I heard earlier today on a panel here, um, uh, it was actually a question someone asked, which is like, well, it seems like you're just repackaging a magazine and putting it on the iPad. Like, how does that take advantage of the iPad, right? Um, and so when we did the Rick Moody serialization to Twitter, micro-serialization, it's not that no one had ever tweeted a story before in segments, but Rick wrote it for Twitter. And that makes it different because he's taking into consideration the constraints of the medium. So knowing the way people use Twitter and knowing the 140 character restraint, he was able to craft a narrative that would live on Twitter specifically. So now you're talking about creative content being made specifically for a distribution platform. So when we micro-serialized it, which was we'd roll out one of the 153 tweets that make up the story every 10 minutes for three days, it didn't feel like a story that was hacked up. Uh, Rick described it as kind of writing haiku that was also kind of had a cumulative effect as well. Each tweet being um, kind of a satisfying experience on its own and then the larger narrative also being told over time. Now we took that and in a strange kind of reverse way, we ended up reprinting it in the print issue. Um, but when you see it in the print issue, it doesn't look like something that would typically be in print you really do feel like you're getting a kind of collection of something designed for another medium. So it's really important that I think the content match the medium. Um, you know, people who, are, when they're reading, they can kind of sniff out when something's just being cut up or, or done in a way um, 
just to try to take advantage of Twitter because Twitter is cool, as opposed to something really trying to take advantage of Twitter uh, and, and all the kind of restraint that uh, it would take to really make something for Twitter or for YouTube. Um, at the end of the day, we ended up netting about 150,000 followers, which is more than any publisher in the world. So um, people did really seem to enjoy it. I, I'm sort of kind of loving to imagine Rick Moody kind of trying to figure out how do I put everything into 140 words, because I know how hard it is for me. Yeah, he yeah. said when he wrote it, he had the little Twitter window open at the same time, and he yeah. was constantly checking. Because I'm Twittering for our site, and sometimes sure. it's like, I have three characters to cut. Yeah. And it's like... Now tell me a little bit, I mean, when you first started out, because I know you've worked with Rick Moody that we talked about, and Colson Whitehead, and a lot of other well-known authors, well-known animators, some well-known musicians. I mean, when you first started out, like, what type of questions did you have to uh, answer from them to sort of get them to buy into this whole concept? Um, you know, in the beginning, of course, it was the hardest. Um, somebody like Michael Cunningham can publish with The New Yorker. He doesn't need to publish with us, and when we had no track record, um, he, he, you know, his agent obviously didn't think it was a good idea. I'm sure his publisher didn't think it was a good idea to, to go with these two guys that just had nothing, no track record, not, no publication yet. Uh, with Jim Shepard, he was up in western Massachusetts. I rented a car and drove six hours so I could buy him a cup of coffee and talk to him about it because I knew if I sent him an email about it, I didn't have a chance. Um, but the thing that unite, united them is that they were all as equally concerned about the future of literary content as we were. And I think our passion for um, keeping it vital and kind of using digital technology to revitalize it was very clear to them. Um, I think that, you know, when we, we outlined our approach, it seemed to make sense. And in the end, uh, they took a big risk by supporting us. So, I mean, we're super grateful to, to them. But also, having them take that risk, I think, upped the ante for us as to making sure that we actually delivered on our promise. Um, so, so, you know, we hustled our asses off, and we still are hustling our asses off to make this thing successful. I mean, we're working like 60 hours a week. We had to quit our day jobs because, um, you know, literary magazines don't usually uh, do, like, uh, they don't usually have the kind of reach that we're trying to get reach, so. Mm -hmm. uh, One of the things that's been really affirming for me is that when we'll work with a writer like Michael or like Lydia Malay or Rick Moody or whoever, um, oftentimes it'll be, you know, a month later, two months later, and they'll come back to us and say, like, um, you know, oh, this experience was so great, or like, this is one of the coolest collaborative things I've ever done, which is, uh, you, you know, in, in recent memory or something. And then they'll kind of be having that conversation with other writer friends of theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then those writers start to kind of come back toward us. Uh, like we're doing a show this uh, on Friday at Le Poisson Rouge, and Rick's band is playing, but so is Myla Goldberg's band, and you know, who wrote B Season. Now we've never published Myla, but as our kind of what we're doing um, is successful with writers we have published, the reputation starts to expand, and then we kind of more people come into the fray. I mean, it's been like very affirming, and it makes me feel like what we're doing is working, and, and people do want to get involved. Right. I was going to say, like, I, I would think when you talk about how hard you had to work, I mean, because if you burn one well-known writer, they tell their network who tells right. their network, and it's a big thing. Now, tell me a little bit about, um, you had kind of talked about in the panel about how traditional publishers, that there's sort of, it's difficult for them to innovate, it's difficult for innovation to kind of make its way up the ranks. I mean, what do you think it is that's kind of blocking it? I mean, what do you think pu traditional publishers can do to kind of foster more of an environment for innovation? I was talking to a very prominent editor um, 
and he, he was talking about one of his authors who has a huge following on the internet and is a very funny guy, um, and they wanted to do an iPhone app for him. And it's like, it seems like a slam dunk that this guy's iPhone app would be massive. Um, even though this editor has a ton of power and he's really well known, he tried to get his like corporate to sign off on this iPhone app. They said, well, we don't want to have an outside company create this app because then all of the knowledge from for how to create an app will be outside. It'll, we won't have it in-house. We want to be able to have our own people work on it. So first of all, you can't get the very best people because you're working with your in-house IT team and not some whatever genius company you can pick. Second of all, once you are trying to work with your in-house IT team, they have their own backlog. So maybe they can start working on it in a year. Um, there's a huge bureaucracy of corporate red tape that gets in the way of somebody just being like, this is a cool idea. Let's jump on it. And so just, I think that they have to set up an environment where they reduce the amount of rules that, that their people have to follow and that they have to give their, structurally, they have to restructure it so that they at least have a few creative people who are able to do whatever the heck they want when it seems like the right time to do it. Because timing, timing is also like things, opportunities come and go very quickly. And so if you can't react quickly and nimbly, um, then, then you're doomed. Uh, small publishers have the advantage of being totally nimble. We don't have nearly the same resources that um, these major publishers do, but yet we're able to be more effective in online marketing and promotion because of that nimbleness. Mm -hmm. And I guess one la last question. So tell me, I mean, if somebody is out there and they're considering starting sort of a multi-platform publishing vehicle, what would your advice be to them to try and starting one up and actually having some success with it? Is it a literary vehicle they sure. want to start? Yes, it's a literary vehicle. <laughs> it, if, I mean, if they want to be your competition. Yeah, because it really does depend on content. You know, um, uh, one of the, I think one of the reasons we've gotten a lot of attention recently is because not only are we publishing literary content, but we're publishing short stories, which are like the most neglected, least marketed, and probably least bought form in the like history of literary publishing. Um, and so the fact that we are making a name for ourselves uh, has a lot to do with us, just as Andy was saying, hustling all the time. I mean, if you're going to be putting out like a fashion magazine, uh, which has maybe a larger appeal and is more graphic-based, then it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, I don't know what kind of advice I would give to the people except for maybe um, you have no idea how much effort it will take. Um, just because you're on the iPhone or on the iPad, if your friend, let's say, can code for the iPhone or the iPad, um, doesn't mean you can be found there. I mean, this is something Andy talked about on the panel, which is that, um, you know, in the large, like some of the largest bookstores in the world, right, like Amazon.com or on the, I, you know, the iBookstore now that's growing, um, there's no organizational structure. So, you know, electric literature would never be found uh, on the App Store unless we're letting people know outside of the App Store that electric literature exists. So you have to be prepared to be marketing and branding yourself all the time. Yeah, I, I think that that's the key. Like, the, the key advice is branding um, really, you know, that sounds like kind of a corporate idea and we're kind of a creative business so we don't use it that much but it's about having an identity and if you have an identity then people 
can identify with you. And when somebody identifies with you, if they're a reader, then they're going to be interested in the stuff that you're publishing. Um, so, so making sure that you have a clear identity is, is super important. Um, literary magazines are such a niche market that I, that I don't even know if many people have seen one. But if you look at, if you have seen one, they generally tend to be like a short story, and then an essay, and then a poem, and then a you know, a black and white photo of a doorway, and then a charcoal <laughs> drawing of like a bowl of fruit, and then another poem. And they're all like that. There isn't a lot of individuation. Um, you know, some of them are higher quality than others, but they're all this kind of grab bag. Uh, when we made the decision to be just fiction, we immediately streamlined who we were and we gained more of an identity when we decided to use images that were striking and to have a more subversive and irreverent advertising campaign we further identified ourselves because we want to kind of get young readers and so we want to we figure you know Michael Cunningham will bring in the 46 year olds but we want the 20 year olds we have to um, be slightly you know subversive and and have fun with our promotional stuff um, and all of this together comes and builds an identity and then you form a relationship with your readers and you make sure that they feel included like you know through facebook and twitter and um email blasts like developing a good email list and having a place on your website that's very prominent where everyone can sign up to get your updates is super important um so yeah just have an identity and be prepared to be a marketer. Like we started this because we love reading and we love stories, but we spend like 10% of our time actually reading and, or maybe 20% on a good week, um, <laughs> reading stories and getting excited about literature and talking about literature. And then when, yeah. our curse is that we have to spend most of our time marketing and promoting right. and letting people know we exist. It's like we, we we have to spend 20, you know, we only get to spend this little 20% of our time to try to convince other people to spend 80% of their time reading, you know, which is, of course, what we'd love to do. One other thing I want to add um, is that when you, if you are taking Andy's advice and my advice about the streamlining um, thing, what you end up with is um, a product or a, a magazine that... Um, that doesn't have a ton in it. So it's really important that all of it be totally top notch. Um, one of the things we talk about all the time is this kind of no nepotism policy, um, which you know can be a problem in, in other small publishers. Don't publish yourself and your friends. Uh, if you are gonna strip it down and you decide as we did, like, okay, just five stories, all fiction, this particular look so now it has an identity it's easy to consume and it, it appeals to a very specific person um, you've got to make sure that all of those stories are in incredible um, you know there's no room for you just to like sneak in your friend's work that really isn't going to be that good because now 20 percent of your issue is is kind of corrupted in some way um, so when you do form these close relationships with readers it's very important to, to not just um, see it as like a benefit to your business but now you're shouldered with the responsibility of um, giving someone you're in a close relationship with something of value. Yeah. You know, they so, don't want to be betrayed. Otherwise, like, you can be really flashy with your advertising and you can get people's attention. But if you don't give them something of substance, then they're going to dismiss you. Right. Well, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate your time and you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. Thank you. Too. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.